The reading is from Romans 8, verse 1 to 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that I was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do declare this morning that you are the rock of ages. And as we come before you this morning, we pray that your word will be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. For our Saviour Christ's sake. Amen. If you'd like to be seated. And thank you, musicians. Excellent. Or have you ever had the chance to do something that you thought that you'd never have the opportunity to do? Something that you thought that you'd love to have a go at, but because of your skills, your genetic makeup, it just really meant that it wasn't possible. Well, for me, I had that opportunity last year, and it came through my absolute love of cricket. Hand up right now, I'm an absolute tragic. I could watch five days of test cricket without even thinking about it. But just so we're... Thank you, thank you. But just so we're clear, I'm a very average third or fourth grade cricketer on a good day, which is a nice way of saying I'm a bit hopeless. But last year I got the opportunity to play in a real senior men's cricket match. And to top it all off, it was against one of my childhood cricketing heroes. So suffice to say that a part of me was really excited by the prospect. But at the same time, I always knew that I was way, way out of my comfort zone. And I knew that the person that, when I went out to bat, I was going to most likely have to face would be a man by the name of Chris Harris. 
Sounds like some of you remember him. Chris Harris played 250 one-day internationals for New Zealand, and he's a bit of a legend. And so as I, started, as I sat waiting to bat, my mind started to wander. Wouldn't it be nice if I could score a few runs off Chris Harris? Actually, he doesn't bowl that fast, and some of you might remember that quite kind of unique bowling style that he has. A pep talk from the coach before I went out to bat filled me with confidence. I was ready for this. I was born ready for this moment. Well, I did face Chris Harris that day. When I went out to bat, there were two balls remaining in the over. And as I walked back to the pavilion, there was still one ball remaining (laughs) in the over. I was out, first ball, a golden duck. And as I walked back to the pavilion, I remember thinking to myself that the only guarantee in life is that there are no guarantees. As the French philosopher Voltaire said, uncertainty is an uncomfortable position, but certainty is an absurd one. Well, I'm here to tell you today that that's not true. I don't want to get overly academic or philosophical and talk about how a statement like nothing is certain in this world is self-contradictory because it in itself says a certain statement. No, I simply want to focus on the fact that my thoughts as I walked off that park that day were wrong. That Voltaire, when he says that certainty is absurd, is wrong. And we know this, why? Because this book tells us so. We as Christians are the recipients of some or the greatest promises, guarantees and certainties that you could ever wish for. And our passage today has four of them. Four great promises or certainties that I've found encouraging and edifying as I've studied this passage, and I hope you do as well. And we'll get to those guarantees in a little bit of a, in a little minute, but first, just a little bit of background. So we're in the book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. And the first eight chapters of the letter are really Paul's overall thesis statement of the Christian faith. What it is and what it isn't. And man, this guy could write, couldn't he? If if you want to debunk the, the common atheist belief that Christianity isn't in any sense academic, just read the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. It is brilliant prose. Charles Spurgeon, a well-known English Baptist minister, once said that Romans 8 is like the Garden of Eden, full of all manner of delights. Here you have all necessary doctrines on which to feed upon and luxurious truths with which to satisfy your soul. Well, as you can see, we're not going to be able to do Romans chapter 8 much justice today. We're only going to be able to scratch the surface. But as I said, I'd like to focus on four great promises or certainties that we find in the passage. And those promises are the fact that we no longer have any condemnation. Secondly, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer. Thirdly, the fact that we have freedom through the Spirit. And lastly, the fact that we will one day share in his glory. So we begin in verse 1, and our first promise. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul, throughout chapter 8, is reaching the culmination of his thesis statement of the previous seven chapters. And some of the ideas and arguments in chapter 8, he more fully elaborates on in previous chapters. And as it is with this first guarantee, and hence the word, therefore. Therefore, 
there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is clear throughout the book of Romans that the law has no ability to save us, none at all, because our nature is sinful and therefore we can never keep the law partially or completely or even partially. Verse 3 of our passage today says, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. In the previous chapter, Paul confirms that the law, which was intended to bring life, actually brought death. This thing called the law, this is me talking now, this thing called the law that was supposed to set out what we had to do in order to be saved only proved time after time after time to be impossible to keep and therefore didn't save us but simply condemned us. And that's one of the law's main jobs, isn't it? To show you and me that under the law we are all condemned. The law offers no chance of salvation. It is useless in that regard. Something else is required. And that something else is the difference between being condemned and now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is justification by faith, isn't it? I sometimes think that we as Christians get, we get dragged into debates or conversations where, where we, we're not clear on the definitions of words before we enter the conversation or the debate. And one of those words is the word faith, where, where a non-believer will just say, well, well, faith, that's just your default position. If you're not sure, you'll just say faith. But when we're talking about justification by faith, we're not talking about faith in the sense of some kind of blind faith. Because the doctrine of justification by faith is only fundamental because the thing that you have faith in is worthy, true, and provable. Faith alone doesn't save anybody. It is faith in something. And for us and the rest of the world, that needs to be the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Romans 5 says it this way, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. We are justified by faith alone. Faith in that one righteous act being the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through him that we can say, therefore, there is now no condemnation. We have a change in status, don't we? From darkness to light, from dead to alive, from lost to found, from condemned to now no condemnation because of Christ's sacrifice. One person put it this way, the law condemns the sinner, the cross condemns sin. And that is why Wesley wrote those famous words, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus in all in him is mine. Wesley got it, didn't he? He knew the promise, the guarantee of no condemnation in Christ. And so if you're here today and you struggle with guilt in your life, know that by putting your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, 
that you are no longer condemned. Let me be clear, that won't mean that your behaviours or actions in your life won't have consequences. All actions have consequences, don't they? But it can certainly mean that you can live assured of his forgiveness and the fact that you are no longer condemned for those. We must move on. That's a great promise, isn't it? You could preach many sermons on that. Our second promise in the passage is summarised nicely by verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. That is, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are given his Holy Spirit, who sets us free from the law of sin and death. This is two great promises. We are given his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death. And we will deal with these in turn. Up until the end of chapter 7 in the book of Romans... The Holy Spirit has been mentioned four times in seven chapters. But in the first 18 verses of chapter 8 of the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 14 times. Clearly, the work of the Spirit was an aspect that Paul was wanting to emphasize in this chapter. So let's unpack this a little bit. The passage is clear that if you are a Christian believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Verse 9, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit of God who lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Paul emphasizes this point both in the positive and in the negative. And there are numerous Old and New Testament verses, aren't there, about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. One example, just one, is from 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? The indwelling in the believer of the Holy Spirit is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith and a promise direct from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is as important and fundamental as Christ's divinity, and it is a wonderful promise to all Christians, and we should celebrate it as such. And the reason it is such a wonderful promise is because of the work that the Spirit does in us. The Holy Spirit's main role within the believer is to mold them to be more like Christ. Christ is so concerned that we live holy and upright lives that he didn't just send his son and die and send his son to die for us on the cross and these and then say there you go guys you deal with the rest no he sent his son and then he says if you love me keep my commands and i will ask the father and he will send you another advocate to help you and he will be with you forever the spirit of truth so do you ever feel like god's absent in your life hard to see in those difficult times. I think we all feel like that at some stage, don't we? Can I encourage you in those moments to pick up this book and read and reread the scriptures that deal and promise that his Holy Spirit dwells in you and that he will never leave you nor forsake you. It is a wonderful promise. Thirdly, we have the freedom that comes by living, from living by the Spirit and not the law. Verse 4, we no longer live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. This theme is repeated throughout chapter 8. We see it in verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, 
verse 13 and 14. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. What do we mean by this? What does it mean to live according to the Spirit? Paul develops this idea in previous chapters, and in particular, Paul preempted the response from the church in Rome, which was, well, if the law is dead and we are under grace, then we can do whatever we want. And in fact, our sin allows Christ to show us more love, more grace, and more forgiveness, and surely that's a good thing. Paul says, no, 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 no. If you are a Christian, then your sins have been crucified with Christ. And to continue to attempt to live in them is a complete oxymoron. You are trying to live in something that your very belief system requires to be dead. It doesn't make a bit of sense. You have died to the law through Christ and therefore have been released from your legal obligations under the law. So as chapter 7 verse 6 puts it, we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Our old life is dead. Sin is dead and we are free. Verse 12 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live by the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. As I mentioned earlier, I love my cricket. And cricket is a funny game and it contains all sorts of intricacies. And one such intricacy is this idea of the spirit of the game, which is said to overarch all the other laws in cricket. And this can create some tension, especially in the heat of battle. I can see Darren Lee smiling at me. I remember watching Brenda McCullum run out a Sri Lankan batsman by the name of, wait for it, Mattia Muralitharan, in very strange circumstances. Mattia Muralitharan's batting partner, a man by the name of Kumar Sangakara, had just scored 100. And Muralitharan tapped his bat in his crease and walked down the wicket to shake the hand of his batting partner who had just scored 100, which is very standard in cricket to congratulate the person who's just scored 100. And at this point, the ball was thrown in from the boundary and Brendan McCullum, who was the wicketkeeper of the time for New Zealand, opportunistically took the bails off and appealed for the run-out. And the batsman was given out. Under the strict laws of the game, was McCullum entitled to do what he did? Yes, he was, absolutely. But was it in the spirit of the laws of cricket to do such a thing? Arguably not. And Brendan McCullum has even acknowledged that fact by apologising a decade later in 2016 and saying, we were within the laws of the game, but not the spirit. If anything, the spirit of the law in cricket raises the bar required for the game of cricket. It doesn't lower it. Similarly, we are called to live by the Spirit. We are not bound by the law, we are free from it. But as children of God who have the Spirit dwelling in us, we want to please God and bring glory to His name. 
Therefore, we seek out the Spirit's desire for us and live according to it. And like the laws of cricket, and unlike the church in Rome was claiming, if anything, our obligations under the Spirit are increased. And we see this clearly, don't we? Somewhere like the Sermon on the Mount, it's pretty clear. Uh, Do not commit adultery becomes do do not even look at another with lust in your eyes. Do not murder becomes don't be angry with your brother, love your enemies, and be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Simple, isn't it? And so, in what is supposed to be a positive, encouraging and edifying sermon, there does come a warning. We as Christians do have an obligation to live by the Spirit. And those are not my words. That's what the passage says. We are free from the law, which is a wonderful truth and a wonderful promise. But with freedom comes responsibility, free choice, and the overarching action that God wants us to show, which is love. And love always requires free choice. So are we, am I, consciously choosing to live by the Spirit who dwells in us? Are we seeking His desire for our lives? Do we take seriously our obligation to live in accordance with the Spirit? Or are there times where we flout the freedom that we have? Are we even willing to ask ourselves these difficult questions? Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, addresses the church and says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Do we portray in our lives the fruits of the Spirit, spoken in somewhere like Galatians chapter 5? Or do our lives resemble more like the acts of the flesh spoken of in that same passage? We need to ask ourselves these questions seriously. And finally, we are promised that one day we will share in his glory, verse 17. The promises we have looked at so far today are promises that are fulfilled in the here and the now. But this last promise is a future promise when our Lord Jesus will return and we will be taken to be with him for all eternity. And we can stake our lives on this future promise and be so sure of it because this book is full of promises, not just the ones we've looked at today, but promise after promise after promise that have already been fulfilled and no more incredibly so than the promises in relation to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. His track record is perfect, and he will come again to take us to be with him in his glory for all eternity. And so, if you are here this morning, and in particular, if you are here, and you know that what I've said today is true, but you're a bit concerned because if you follow it, you know you're going to have to change your life. Well, I'll make it worse for you. Because verse 17 also says that Christians will suffer. Life won't be easy being a Christian. However, can I remind you of Esau in the book of Genesis who sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for bread and stew in one of the worst bargaining decisions of all time. He gave up his very being and his future for immediate pleasure now. Don't be like Esau. Ignoring what is true And playing with your eternity and the promise of living in the glory of God forever is not something to be taken lightly. Eternity is serious business. 70 years, if you're lucky, is a blink of an eye. 
No other belief system in the world gets as close to the promises and truths in this book, both fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled. We are no longer condemned. We have the spirit of the living God living in us. We are set free from the law of sin and death, and we will one day share in his glory. Amen.